All right, I want you to follow along as I read, starting in verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Bethuel, Pethuel, and that's far enough. <laughs> On November 1st, 1755, at 940, Saturday morning, the city of Lisbon in Portugal was rocked by a powerful earthquake, one measuring 7.7 on the magnitude scale. For six minutes, the inhabitants were gripped by fear as the ground shook. The center of the city square, a great fissure opened up, leaving gaping holes 16 feet across. Forty minutes later, the harbor was hit by a tsunami of water that destroyed ships and flooded much of the city. Not only floods, but fires that had fallen as a result of candles that had hit the ground. Now, according to the Wikipedia article I read on this, shocks from the earthquake were felt throughout Europe as far as Finland in, uh, and in North Africa, and according to some sources, even in Greenland and the Caribbean. A tsunami wave 66 feet high hit along the coast of North Africa and struck islands, the islands of Barbados and Martinique on the other side of the Atlantic. Well, the physical damage was immense. 85% of all the buildings were destroyed by the earthquake and the fire that ensued. The 70,000 books in the city library, along with numerous works of arts, perished in the floodwaters and flames. And of course, uh, greater loss was the loss of life that resulted. Of the 200,000 residents of Lisbon, 30 to 40,000 died, with another 10,000 in Morocco and Spain. And Ecclesiastes 7.14 says this. It says, In the day of prosperity, be happy, but in the day of adversity, consider God has made one as well as the other. Now, just like has happened in our country when the World Trade Center went, back, or went down back in 2001, uh, people in Europe at that time were asking why. Why did God allow this to happen? Now, added to the consternation was the fact that uh, it happened on All Saints Day, uh, one of the holy days of the Catholic Church. I mean, why would God bring destruction on a day when we were worshiping him? Now, Protestants had a simple answer. They said the problem is that uh, God is rejecting your false worship because it's pagan. Catholics, on the other hand, argued that God was angry with Portugal for allowing a few Protestants to live among them. Well, one of the people who was mocking the whole idea that God did it uh, was the French philosopher Voltaire. In 1759, he wrote a book with biting satire, a novel inspired by the Lisbon earthquake. He called it Candide, all for the best. Now, the main character, Candide, is living in like this sheltered Eden-like uh, garden environment where he's being taught philosophy by Professor Pangloss. Now, the professor's name is significant because pan means all and gloss means to look past. And Professor Pangloss is the ultimate optimist. Whatever happens, he says, it's all for the best in this best of all possible worlds. I mean, it's not just that things happen the way that they do, but they must happen that way. God has designed it that way. Sure, Columbus brought back unknown diseases from America, but if he hadn't gone there, we never would have had the wonderful chocolates that we do now. Well, if there's an earthquake in Lisbon, that's exactly where it had to happen. In this, the best of all possible worlds. Now his student, Candide, buys into this philosophy, but over time experiences all kinds of misfortunes and pain, and he finally becomes disillusioned by the events and rejects the idea that the present world and all of its sufferings is the best of all possible worlds. Professor Pangloss, on the other hand, though himself he's ravaged by syphilis and almost hanged and nearly dissected, still holds out to the idea that this is the best of all possible worlds. Now that phrase, the best of all possible worlds, actually comes from another philosopher, Gottfried Leibniz, who was a German philosopher. And he argued that God is good 
and what God has made, the world is good. So if God is in the heavens, all is right in the world. But the problem is, is God is in the heavens, but all is not right with the world. And earthquakes like the one that hit Lisbon prove it. I mean, we live in a, a fallen world where bad things happen even to people we consider good. And Paul tells us why in Romans chapter 8 when he said this, For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself would be set free from the slavery of corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Folks, we live in a fallen world, one that God has cursed. And although all suffering ultimately goes back to the fall as a result of sin, we can't trace any particular event necessarily back to the sin of some individual or perhaps even a nation. So just because someone's diagnosed with cancer doesn't mean that God is chastising them for not uh, going to Bible study regularly. And if a uh, hurricane hits New Orleans, you can't say, well, it's because they have Mardi Gras there. I mean, Job's friends were sure they knew the reason why he was suffering all the things that he did, but he, they didn't. But with all that said, there are times when there's a direct connection between the calamities we experience and the sins that provoke them. And that's the message of the book of Job. Job opens up his prophecy by pointing to a, a recent natural disaster, a locust plague, but rather than suggest that it's just one of those cyclical events or a result of climate change, he asserts that God himself has brought this disaster upon the people and what they need to do is to repent. But beyond this immediate disaster in Israel, Joel was telling us that there's a greater threat out on the horizon. When the day of the Lord finally arrives, it won't be an army of locusts that strip the nation bare. Rather, it'll be an army of human soldiers who devastate their land and bring them to ruin. And yet, because of God's grace... This end times catastrophe will not end in the utter destruction of Israel, but in the salvation of her people. Well, today, as we begin this journey through Joel, the book of Joel, I want to I take the first week to do an introduction to help us understand what's going on in the book, and then we will go through it in the weeks to follow. So why don't we pray and ask for God's help? Father God, I do pray for grace and mercy as we look at this book. I pray that you'd help us to understand its relevance to our life and to the life of our nation. Bless us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, because I'm only introducing the book today, uh, not looking at a specific text, I want to ask and answer a series of questions concerning the prophecy of Joel. So here's the first one. Why am I preaching through this book now? Well, I'm preaching through this book because it's one of the 66 books of the Bible, the only 66 that are inspired in the world. I remember talking to a pastor at a conference one time and I asked him the question, I said, so what are you preaching through right now? He said, well, I'm preaching through the purpose-driven life. I said, on Sunday morning? Yeah, on Sunday morning. It's a chapter a week. I said, there's 66 books in the Bible. Couldn't you have found one of them to preach on? I mean, Paul reminded Timothy that all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so the man of God might be adequate, equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17. Part of the reason I chose this book is because we just spent three and a half years in, in Romans. And uh, I wanted to tackle a book that was a little shorter. This has three chapters, and I think we're going to be able to get through it in about five to six weeks. And after that, we're going to be going into the book of Acts. And I'm not quite through preaching through the Gospel of Luke for the radio broadcast, and so I needed a shorter series that I could put in there so I could start both Acts on the radio and on Sunday morning as well. 
I also like to preach through books that pastors generally don't. I preached a couple of sermons on Obadiah, and I remember telling you the reason I was doing that is because you would never hear a sermon on Obadiah otherwise. Well, there's one more reason, though, I chose this book. We're living in some tough times these last couple of years. With the COVID pandemic and constant alarmism over climate change, every natural disaster is taken as evidence for global warming. And we must give governments complete power over all the citizens or we'll all be dead in 10 years. You hear it. Whether it's droughts or flood, hot weather or cold, hurricanes or tornadoes, anything natural that brings negative consequences calls for the government to do more. Pope Francis, back in 2020 on Earth Day, said this. He, he called world leaders to hear the Earth's chorus of cries and anguish stemming from climate change, extreme weather, and loss of biodiversity. He also called for the richer nations to pay their ecological debt because their consumerism has caused most of the environmental pollution over the last two centuries, marring nature's song. Now, most climate activists have no problem talking about Mother Nature being angry because of the rise of CO2 levels, but the idea that there's a God angry at us because of the rising level of our sin, well, to them that seems absurd and pre-scientific. But the Bible makes it clear that it's God who sends or withholds rain. Earthquakes, tsunamis, plagues are all ordered by his throne. In our modern society with its false beliefs, we need to be reminded of the ancient truth that the Lord has established his thrones in the heaven and his sovereignty rules over all, Psalm 103, 19. That brings us to our second question, though. Who wrote the book? Well, it was written by a prophet named Joel. How many Joels do you know? We have a couple of them in our church. I have a couple of them in our family. You know, in the Bible, there's 22 references to someone named Joel. One of them was Samuel's oldest son, the prophet Samuel. Another one was a, a person who was second in charge of the city of Jerusalem during Nehemiah's day. Well, the name Joel means the Lord is God. Well, what do we know about this Joel? Well, what we know about him is what's found in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. That's it. <laughs> well, who wrote this book? I mean, or when was the book written? Well, the commentators argue back and forth on this question because Joel is placed uh, right after the book of Hosea, which we know was written in the 8th century B.C. Some think it's likely that it was written around that time. When Joel speaks of Israel's enemies, he mentions the Philistines and the Phoenicians and Egypt and Edom. Uh, these were the enemies around that time. On the other hand, he lacks any references to the northern kingdom or even a king, which makes it sound like it might have been written around 500 B.C., that is 300 years later, and that being after the time that they came back from the land of Babylon and their exile. Actually, the one thing I noticed as I did my study was almost all the commentators agree that nobody really knows when it was written. But it doesn't really matter that much for understanding the text. Well, here's the third question that has to be asked. What's the occasion for the writing of the book? Question, that's easier to answer. It was written as a result of a locust plague that took place in the country. Job opens up with this, starting in verse 2. He said, Hear this, O elders, and listen, O inhabitants of the earth. Has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's days? Tell your sons about it, and let your sons tell their sons and the next generation what the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten, and what the swarming locust has left, the creeping locusts have eaten, and what the creeping locusts have left, the stripping locusts have eaten. Now, locust plagues happen every now and then. There was one that actually occurred back in 2020, where swarms descended upon East Africa and also the Arabian Peninsula. It was the worst locust outbreak in 70 years in the country of Kenya. And next week, when we look at uh, the first chapter, I'm going to tell you about a great locust plague that devastated the United States back in 1870s. 
Well, locusts are not just annoying like deer flies are at my house or maybe the sand flies at yours. Uh, they strip the entire land of all of its vegetation, leaving people with a prospect of starvation. I mean, think about it, just since the uh, start of the Ukraine war a few months back, we're hearing more and more about food insecurity and the possibility of widespread famines in Africa. Many African countries get almost all their grain from the Ukraine and Russia. And yet, uh, there are moves by our government and others to reduce the amount of land that's being used for farming by 30% so they can save the planet. And if a lot of people have to starve in the process, well, that's just the price that they're going to have to pay for the global elites to achieve their lofty goals. Well, here's the fourth question. What's the theme of the book of Job? Well, the phrase, the key phrase on understanding this book is the term, the day of the Lord. Let's look at some of the page, uh, places where it's found in the book. Joel 1.15, and just kind of page through as we get to these. Joel 1.15 says this, Alas, for the day of the Lord is near, and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. Job 2.1 says, Blow a trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, surely it is near. 2.11 The Lord utters his voice before his army. Surely his camp is very great, for strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and awesome, and who can endure it? Joel 20, 30-31. God promises, I will display wonders in the sky and on earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into blood and the moon, or into darkness, and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Or Job 3, 14. Speaking of a future day of judgment, when it says, multitudes and multitudes in the valley of decision. The day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. And while the day of the Lord will bring terrifying judgment and devastation, not only to Israel, but the whole world, it will nevertheless end with Israel's enemies being defeated and that nation being redeemed and restored to a place of prominence as God's chosen people. Like a woman giving birth Whatever pain and suffering Israel will have to endure, what will be brought forth in the end will be beautiful and glorious. Joel 3.18 says this, And in that day, the mountains will drip with sweet wine, and the hills will overflow with milk, and all the brooks of Judah will flow with water, and a spring will go forth from the uh, house of the Lord to water the valley of Shittim, and Egypt will become a waste, and Edom will become a desolate wilderness because of the violence done unto the sons of Judah, in whose lands they have shed uh, innocent blood. But Judah will be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem for all generations, and I will avenge their blood, which I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. When we get to chapter 2, we'll take a survey of some of the other passages in the scripture that talk about this day of the Lord. But even right now, I think we can make a few observations of it. Here's the first thing. The day of the Lord speaks of a time where God directly intervenes in human history, in the affairs of men to bring judgment against his enemies and rescue his people. The second thing I want to say about the day of the Lord is that some scholars argue that the phrase day of the Lord refers to any dramatic act of judgment upon people. So the day of the Lord occurred Uh, when Noah went into the ark and the floodwaters came and wiped them out. The day of the Lord occurred again in Sodom and Gomorrah uh, when they were destroyed by fire from heaven. But the Bible speaks not only of a day of the Lord, but the day of the Lord as the end times climactic judgment of God upon a rebellious world to pay them back for their sins. As a result, the pride of men will be brought low and the glory of God will be lifted up. 
Isaiah prophesying about this day said this in Isaiah 2, 11 to 17. He said, the proud look of man will be abased and the loftiness of man will be humbled. And that day alone, the Lord will be exalted. For the Lord of hosts will have his day of reckoning against everyone who's proud and lofty and against everyone who's lifted up that he may be abased. And it'll be against all the cedars of Lebanon that are lofty and lifted up and against all the oaks of Bashan, against the lofty mountains, against all the hills that are lifted up, against every high tower, against every fortified wall, against all ships of Tarshish and against all the beautiful crafts. The pride of man will be humbled and the loftiness of men will be abased and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. What Joel is doing here is he's taking a recent catastrophic event, that locust plague, one which no one could ignore or deny, and he's using that as a harbinger, a portent, a, a foretaste, a forewarning of something coming at the end, which is going to make that locust plague look mild in comparison. Both locusts stripping your lands and enemy soldiers flooding your streets give strong indication that something is morally amiss with your country. In his book, The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis wrote this, We can ignore even in pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. No doubt, pain as God's megaphone is a terrible instrument and it may lead to a final unrepentant rebellion, but it gives the only opportunity that a bad man has for amendment. It removes the veil. It plants the flag of truth within the fortress of the rebel soul. Folks, our country, without a doubt, has ignored God in a pursuit of pleasure and all the blessings that he's given us. But now, it appears that that process of removing those blessings is well underway. And the increasing pain that God is giving us is with the intent that we would turn back to him. But our country, I mean, even with the disasters that keep coming, floods and droughts and inflation, soaring crime, drug overdoses, military defeats, Afghanistan was that, we're constantly misreading the signs of the times. We, we think that, that it's a call from creation for greater government control rather than a demand from our creator to cease from our sin and rebellion. The nation of Israel was just as blind and deaf in Joel's day as we are today. In the book of Amos, God addressed the people of Israel trying to get their attention and yet their failure to repent. He says this, he said, I brought hunger to every city and famine to every town. But still, you would not return to me, says the Lord. I kept rain from falling when your crops needed it the most. I sent rain on one town but withheld it from another. I have to stop there. Suzanne and I were driving just the other day and I said, you know, we, for a, a drought year, our, our uh, lawn has never looked better. But some of you live just a few miles that way and you didn't get any of the rain that we got here. What God said is, look, I made a rain in one city and not the other. Shouldn't you have figured out there must be something going on here? He said, I sent rain on one town but withheld it from another. Rain fell on one field while another withered away. People staggered from town to town looking for water, but there was never enough. But still you would not return to me, says the Lord. I struck your farms and your vineyard with blight and mildew. Locusts devoured all your figs and olive trees. But you still would not return to me, says the Lord. I sent plague on you like the plague I sent on Egypt long ago. I killed your young men in war and I led all your horses away. The stench of death fills the air. But still, 
you would not return to me, says the Lord. I destroyed some of your cities as I destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Those who survived were like charred sticks pulled from a fire, but still you would not return to me, says the Lord. Therefore, I will bring upon you all the disasters I have announced. Prepare to meet your God in judgment, O people of Israel. Well, third thing I want to say about the day of the Lord is when you get to the New Testament and you read about the day of the Lord, you find that it's actually speaking of the day of Christ's return. Writing to the Thessalonians who were under the mistaken view that the day of the Lord had already occurred, Paul wrote this. He said, Now we request with you, uh, you brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together with him, that you would not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for that, will not, that day will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Now, by the way, there's a common belief among evangelical churches what they call the pre-trib, or the, yeah, pre-trib rapture of the church, that before any of these bad things are going to happen at the end, all the Christians are going to be taken out. The problem is, as Paul just said here, now concerning the day of the Lord and our gathering together with him, that's the rapture, that day won't occur until two things happen first. The great apostasy where people abandon the truth in the churches, that's going on right now. And secondly, the man of sin, meaning the lawless one, the Antichrist, is revealed. Yeah. Well, but I want you to notice that Paul connects the day of the Lord with the day of Christ's return. Remember, it's connected, it says the coming of our Lord and our gathering together with him. Now in Matthew 24, 29 to 31, Jesus said this, But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds of power, with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four corners or four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Now notice, once again, the tribulation happens and immediately after the day of the Lord comes and then he sends out his angels to gather in the elect. Jesus spoke about these times and how people will be terrified Men fainting, he said, from fear and expectation of the things that are coming upon the earth for the wo- and the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. John Writing about the arrival of the day of the Lord said this, I looked and behold, a sixth seal was broken and a great earthquake and the sun became like black, like sackcloth made of hair and the whole moon became like blood and the stars fell to the earth and as a fig tree cast its unripe fruit when it's shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it's rolled up and every mountain, every island was moved out of its place. Now think about that earthquake. Every island... (laughs) One guy told me, I heard him uh, preaching one time, he said he was speaking at some place, I don't know where it was, like some uh, Mediterranean island or wherever it was, and the guy came up afterwards and said, every island? I mean, <laughs> he didn't like that idea. But he says this, he says, Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits from on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Listen to this. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand against it? Revelation 6, 12 to 17. We're going to learn more, like I said, about the coming day of the Lord in the weeks to come. But it's obvious from even these passages that it's going to be a day of earth-shaking and devastating consequences much more than happened in Lisbon. 
in Portugal. Well, what's the theology of this book? I mean, what do we learn from this book of prophecies in Joel? Well, the first thing we learn, and the most important lesson, is sin is a big, big deal. You know, the world doesn't think so. And I'm not convinced as Christians we realize just how much God hates sin. One Puritan, Ralph Venning, wrote a book entitled The Sinfulness of Sin. The introduction of the book says this, We cannot understand the Christian gospel until we understand what sin is. Yet modern secular counselors urge us to ignore both the word and what it tells us about our rebellion against God and his law. Sadly, the church too often serves as an echo chamber for such cheap and short-sighted wisdom. Its literature spreads the deceptive message that all is well. But it's only when we begin to see our sinfulness that we're able to discover God's forgiveness. Although the sinfulness of sin was written 300 years ago, it remains an oasis of truth in a desert of lies. First published in the aftermath of the Great Plague of London, entitled Sin, the Plague of Plagues, this book gives crystal clear explanation of what sin is and why it's so serious and what we need to do about it. Here is a reliable medicine for the fatal epidemic. Well, in the last three years, the COVID virus has not been nearly as deadly as the sin virus. Joel not only spoke of a locust plague and devastation abroad, he also speaks of the possibility of repentance and healing that will be brought both to our lives and our nation. And this brings us to our second great theological truth. Repentance is the road to healing and restoration, both for individuals and for nations. The Beatles had a song titled Golden Slumbers that had these lyrics on it. Once there was a way to get back home, once there was a way to get back home, sleep pretty darling, do not cry, and I will sing you a lullaby. Folks, listen carefully. The way to get back home has always been the same. It's to take the road of repentance. Jeremiah wrote the book of Lamentations after Jerusalem had been destroyed and the people were taken into captivity into a foreign land. Now reflecting on the horrendous things where it got so bad that women killed their own children and ate them. He said this, Why should any living mortal or any man offer up complaint in view of his own sins? Let us examine and probe our ways and let us return to the Lord. Maybe that's where you are today. You're actually going on the broad road to destruction. The one that Jesus said many take. That pathway is going to lead to frustration, disappointment, despair, and in the end, eternal destruction. Traveling down that road so far hasn't brought you any deep, lasting satisfaction. So why would you think that continuing would bring you that? Why not repent? Why not return to the Lord? If you do, you will find that like the father in the story of the prodigal son, who when he saw his son coming home, said, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his finger and a sandal on his feet and bring out the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this son of mine was dead but now he's come to life again. He was lost and now he's found. And they began to celebrate. The party starts when you repent. Repentance is appropriate but I have to say this though, it's insufficient to deal with our sin problem in and of itself. That's what Jewish people teach. They point to verses that say, if we repent, God will forgive us. 
And so they say, the only thing you have to do is just change your mind, and God will forgive. But let's say somebody rapes and kills your daughter, and a person the accused is brought before the court, and they have all the evidence for him. And uh, he looks at the judge and he says, Judge, I just want you to know I am truly sorry about this. And the judge lets him go. So, well, as long as you're sorry, that's kind of what we wanted. Would you be happy with that? Would you be satisfied with that? Would that be okay? No. Because justice has to be served. What's true in both Islam and Judaism is they believe there's a possibility of forgiveness through repentance. But there's no understanding of how God maintains his justice in the meantime. But that's where Christianity has an answer. It's the cross. God is holy. He cannot tolerate sin. God is just. He must punish sin as the judge of the whole world. And what he did on that cross was put all the sins of those who would ever trust Jesus on him and then punish Jesus in our stead. And then he took Jesus' righteousness, his record of law-keeping, his perfect record of law-keeping, and imputed it, credited to the account of the believer the moment he trusts in Christ. So that whatever a believer's life is, no matter how dirty they came out of, whether they're Jeffrey Dahmer or not, the moment Jeffrey Dahmer believed in Christ, he had the same righteousness that Jesus himself possessed. And that's what we hold to, an imputed righteousness with our sins removed by the death of Jesus. Peter put it this way. He said, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And by the way, even as Christians, we have to repent on a regular basis, don't we? Because we still fall short of the glory of God. You see, God is no Professor Pangloss. He can't look past human sins and the horrors it brings, both in society and even in nature. This is not now the best of all possible worlds. Rather, we live in a sin-filled, earth-cursed world where natural disasters and crass human wickedness are often seen and experienced. The world is a fallen world. So it's not what it was, neither is it what it'll be after the day of the Lord. So as Christians, we approach the world and what we see in it with a clear-eyed realism, but also with great hope. Because according to his promise, we're looking for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. What I'm telling you is keep trusting in Christ, keep hope alive. The best of all possible worlds is yet to come. And God give us the grace because we're living in some dark days where we need to shine awful bright. Why don't you pray with me? Our Father in God, when I looked up some things on locust plagues and what they did, it was, it was stunning. When this happened, the people were facing starvation, and I'm sure some of them possibly did starve. But as we're going to see as we go through this book, you held out hope, your servant Joel did, that if we repent of our sins, that you would be quick to forgive us our sins, to call off the judgment, and even, as it says in one place, to restore the years that the locusts have eaten away. Father, every one of us has wasted enough time chasing after the things of the world, none of which have brought us lasting satisfaction. We were created to find our rest in you, Lord, and we'll never have our rest until it's in you. So we pray, Father, as we go through this uh, um, prophecy of Joel, that you'd speak to our heart and speak to us that we might understand what's going on in our culture as well, 
that we can shine brightly. So bless us now, we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake.